These are our sacred stories. May God grant us the wisdom and the courage for their interpretation. Samantha was a hard worker. She had an attention to detail that often got her praise from her aunts, and she enjoyed practicing at her mother's loom when she had finished her tasks for the day. Her father, a proud, educated man who worked in the temple, had taught her the words of the prophets and the stories of her people, and she often recited scripture to herself as she worked at the loom, matching its rhythm to her words. Samantha was perceptive. Her parents didn't think she understood or even was listening when they spoke politics, but she did. She paid attention. She knew that the Roman Empire oppressed her people, much like the Egyptians had many, many generations ago. She knew that the local governor, Pontius Pilate, was a mean man who seemed almost to enjoy the suffering of others, or at least was ambivalent to their pain. She knew that even though her father was an important man in the community, even he feared the impunity with which the emperor or even the governor could hurt their people if they were seen to be getting too, too, what was the word her father used? Uppity. She wished her father would stand up to the Romans or at least encourage the community to have a backbone or something. As the festival of the Passover approached and her people ritually remembered their liberation from oppression in Egypt, Samantha wondered why none of the grown-ups had the chutzpah to stand up against their current oppression. She thought about the words of the prophet Zechariah, who foretold that one day all the nations who ever oppressed her people would be defeated in battle by the Lord, mounting an assault from the Mount of Olives, and any of their oppressors who, would sur who survived the battle would forever after worship the Lord and make pilgrimages to Jerusalem and observe their sacred festivals. Samantha remembered the story of the great hero Simon of the Maccabees, who with his band of rebels took back Judea from the Seleucid Empire and was welcomed with praise and palm branches as he entered Jerusalem to recapture the citadel there. Samantha knew it wasn't ladylike to think about such things, but she often envisioned the Messiah as he was foretold by the prophets, a great military leader, a king from the line of David, someone annihilating their enemies and restoring peace to the land. She envisioned him thundering down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, atop a magnificent stallion, sword, sword and shield in hand, the full power of the Lord behind him defeating the Romans in a battle that would make those tumbling walls of Jericho look like her baby brother toppling his block towers. Samantha had heard whisperings of a man who some were calling the Messiah, the Anointed One, making his way to their city. Her father and his co-workers at the temple were frustrated at the attention that this man, this peasant, was getting, and she'd overheard him telling his mo her mother something about a man named Lazarus. She wasn't sure what it was about, but her father sounded angry and a little worried. Her father was protective of his family, of their community, and of his status. And Samantha got the impression that he felt that all three were about to be threatened if this rando from Nazareth caused too much of a stir right under the Romans' noses. 
But secretly, Samantha thought that perhaps what was needed was a stir. If this man really was the Messiah, then surely his arrival in Jerusalem meant that the defeat of the Romans was imminent. She had heard rumors that this man would arrive on the same day that the Roman army planned to enter the city. It sounded like everything was falling into place according to the prophecy. So Samantha decided she was going to be there to witness the beginning of their liberation. Samantha was like a lot of her people, holding on to a prophecy of mighty, majestic, militarily victorious Messiah who would liberate her people in a blaze of vindicating glory. The Passover remembers the Israelites' liberation from Egypt. It was a holiday that that has some anti-imperialist implications that set the Romans a little on edge. In fact, the combination of the massive population increase as pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem and the anti-imperial theme of the holiday led the Romans to flood the city with extra protection. So you had the Roman army entering the city from the west, flags flying, horses prancing, drums and armor clanking, an impressive display of Roman imperial power whose message was simple. Resistance is futile. Zechariah prophesies about the Lord descending from the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, to launch a battle against the oppressors of the Jewish people. Jesus' arrival from the east, mirroring the army's arrival from the west, it really does feel like a cinematic moment. The disciples going ahead, drumming up excitement, waving and distributing palm fronds, which represented victory, triumph, and peace, the kind of peace that's brought about by a military victory. It wouldn't be too hard for anyone familiar with the words of the prophets to assume that this could mean that a showdown was about to take place. It's a cliched scene to start with. You picture two rival armies. The camera cuts back and forth between the two as they make their way to the battlefield, to the point of inevitable conflict, like Braveheart, Last of the Mohicans, Star Wars, West Side Story. We're familiar with how this goes. The opposing forces get closer and closer, the tension builds and builds, they're nose to nose, and then the leader of the underdog army takes out his gun, aims, pulls the trigger, and out pops a little sign that says, bang. His fellow infantrymen unsheath their swords, which turn out to be flowers. So much for an epic, Oscar-worthy battle scene. That's what's going on as Jesus processes towards Jerusalem. Folks get wind of what's coming from all the hype. They're expecting a cinematic entry of a great leader. They strain to catch a glimpse of Jesus as he approaches, and he's on a colt. Like, this isn't even a full-size donkey. His legs are probably dragging on the ground. A modern analogy might be the Shriners with their little cars, the parades. This is clearly not a great military leader. This is clearly not a competent army. This is clearly not the beginning of a victorious campaign to overthrow the Romans. And yet there are Jesus' followers and disciples waving palm fronds and shouting, Hosanna, save us. 
You can imagine a girl like Samantha looking around, bewildered and let down. Does, does anybody else see this? This, this dude's a joke. This, this is a joke, right? This has to be a joke. And, and if it is a joke, well, it isn't very funny. We are in real pain. This isn't something to mock or make fun of. They expected a military leader, and they got a peasant from Nazareth whose two most aggressive moments were overturning tables during a temple temper tantrum, I practice saying that, and cursing a fig tree because it wasn't the season for figs. Plus, that whole turn-the-other-cheek business is not exactly the makeup of a William Wallace or a George Washington. In fact, Jesus had been failing expectations since birth. Remember how people had heard a king was to be born? A king of the Jews who might finally lead them out of oppression and into freedom? Remember how the Magi brought gifts fit for such a king? Splendors of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? And then it turns out that this king was a peasant baby born in a smelly cave to an unwed teenage girl engaged to a carpenter from Nazareth. Epic fail. They were expecting majesty, royal dignity, and they got humiliation on the cross. Jesus was not the savior they expected, not the savior they wanted, but he was the savior they needed. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, not in an echo of Zechariah 14, the Lord riding down from the Mount of Olives to defeat the enemy, but an echo of Zechariah 9, the king arriving humbly on a lowly donkey. Jesus isn't a Messiah to replace the imperial rule of the Romans, but a Messiah to dismantle imperialism altogether. Jesus defeats death by showing us how love can live beyond it. Jesus shows us how to live abundantly and how to love ceaselessly. Jesus was a savior not just for those who looked like him or worshipped in the same way as him. He was a savior for all who seek to follow in the way, for all who try to love God with all of their heart, soul, and mind, and to love their neighbors as themselves. For as the baptismal formula in the Bible reminds us, in Christ there is no Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male and female. There are no ethnic divisions in Christ's community. There are no class divisions in Christ's community. The boundaries created by our human notions of gender melt away in Christ's community. Jesus was a savior who prayed for the forgiveness of those who persecuted him even as he was dying on the cross. No, he wasn't the savior they wanted. He was the savior they got. He was the savior that we got. We all have expectations about Jesus, about his presence in our lives, about the role that Christ plays. We have expectations for Jesus that are left unmet in a miraculous way that reminds us that Jesus may not be the savior we want, but is indeed the savior we need. And what are these expectations? Well, one big one that came to my mind was the way that many of us expect Jesus to fit neatly into our human politics, 
our arguments, our Facebook moral tirades. I find myself snarkily asking, who would Jesus bomb? Thinking that my point has been made, absolving myself of the responsibility of acknowledging and respecting nuance, or of thinking through my positions and working with those whose opinions and perspective differ from me to come to a solution together. But don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of the what would Jesus do guiding question. But for personal decisions and conduct. And yes, as Christians, it's important to think about what kind of people God wants us to be and what kind of world we are called to create. Did you catch that, though? What kind of world we are called to create. When we snarkily pull Jesus into a political argument, we're expecting Jesus to fit neatly into our perspective, to take our side, to shoulder our responsibility for figuring this mess out. And when has Jesus ever really fit neatly into anyone's perspective? As we've been reading this spring in the Gospel of John, we're talking about stuff here. The characters are all kind of here. And Jesus is way off up there. It was such an issue that the author of John put in many theological asides to help try and explain just what Jesus was even talking about to the readers. Sometimes we expect Jesus to take away our pain, be it our own physical or emotional pain or our cultural pain. In that way, we're not much different from Samantha, hoping for a Messiah that will just fix everything. Instead, as Kent talked about a few weeks back, Jesus offers us a way to work through our pain, to recognize that pain is a part of the human condition, and that while we can and should strive to not cause harm to others, the point isn't to have a pain-free life. The point is to invite God to help us make meaning of our experiences, to deepen in our relationships with God and neighbor and self, to build communities that make pain bearable and give us the strength and the balm to keep going. So as we move through Holy Week, we are brought along an emotional roller coaster. As we enter into our sacred stories of this precious season, Let's leave our expectations for the Savior we want at the door. Let's open our eyes and our hearts to the miracle of the Savior we need. The miracle that that is the Savior we have.